you know, as, as we get into our passage this morning, we're going to be in Mark 14. We're going to continue along on this journey along with Jesus as he gets closer and closer to the cross. And so as you're, you're turning uh, your, your Bibles to Mark 14, I, I would like to encourage you to think about what this past week was in the life of the church. Uh, for some of you, you may have noticed that there were people this past week walking around with smudges on their foreheads. And this is because there are a number of people within the body of Christ who come from church traditions where they celebrate a day called Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a day in the church where the church gathers to think on our humanness and our brokenness. It's a, it's a service where when people come up, they come before the pastor, and as the pastor makes a smudge on their forehead in ashes in the shape of a cross, he says, we are dust, and to dust we shall return. These are words that God spoke in the curse in Genesis to Adam and Eve, and specifically to Adam, when he reminds him that because of sin, because of what has happened in, in entering into my, my perfect creation of the garden, because of the brokenness there, you have come from dust and to dust you shall return. And so Ash Wednesday is a day that is set apart in the church to reflect on our humanness, to reflect on our brokenness and our limitations. It's not so much a day that we are meant to consider how wretched and horrible we are, but a day to remember who we are in Christ and how we are a child of God. We, were never, we never had the strength and the ability and the, the wholeness in us apart from him doing that work in us. And so on this day, we think on not just our limitations and our brokenness, but also the gift we have in a God who reaches out and redeems us through his son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Ash Wednesday is a day that, that can be very helpful in that, because it teaches us to remember and to know who we are. That we are a people who don't have an, a limitless amount of time on this earth. But that because of sin, because of death, because of the curse of sin, we have a limitation that's put upon us that God rescues and redeems us from. And so when we come to him and say, I am broken, I am in need, I am limited as one of your creation, we can come before him and actually receive wisdom in knowing that we are a child of God, one who he actually looks over and cares for and provides for and, and shepherds. See, I think our limitations and our brokenness, apart from God, leave us feeling hopeless and, and, and lost. Yet, Yet I think the invitation from God in reflecting on this day is an invitation to submit these limitations to him in prayer. And the gift we receive is one of wisdom. When we realize we are not the master of, this, of our, our lives, we're not the master of our, our destinies and, and, and have power to change our future, but we are participants in the life that God provides us through Jesus Christ. And the life he provides for us is one full of wisdom and beauty. And so I would encourage you to, to think on, though we don't practice Ash Wednesday here at Trinity, to think on the benefits of what it might be to take a day to think on our limitations and, and our brokenness. To realize that, that maybe we're not as good as we think we are, and yet we're also in that very same moment more loved and appreciated than we ever dared believe. It's, 
it's a view of the gospel I've grown to appreciate that Tim Keller kind of articulates. He, he taught, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, not after or, or once God, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news that shapes and changes Ash Wednesday from a day where we're invited to think of how wretched and horrible we are to actually realizing how loved and accepted we are in our brokenness and in our limitations. See, this morning in our passage, Mark is going to introduce us to a few people. Well, actually, we already know some of them, but he's going to introduce us to a woman. And this woman, I think, she gets it. She understands the limitations of this world, the brokenness of this world. She understands that Jesus has a purpose. And it's not just to be a good prophet or a good teacher or someone who does a good deed, but he's come to accomplish the fixing of our brokenness and our limitations. So if you would... I'd like to read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14 for us. So starting in Mark 14, verse 1, let me pick up from there. Hear God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She's anointed my body be- beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, They were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. We're one step closer to the cross. We're one step closer to that moment where Judas betrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and that, that the immediacy of his arrest and his crucifixion starts to unfold. Here in our passage, we, we see something interesting where the, the, these 11 verses open and close with conflict and betrayal. In the opening two verses, Mark tells us about the desire of the religious leaders to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But guess what? They're too afraid of the crowds. Now, depending on what source you're looking at, it's estimated that the, the population in Jerusalem jumped from 25,000 to, to 80,000 people uh, in, in, in the city, depending on, again, what source you look at. But during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the population rises to 70,000 to 300,000, right? In essence, the population more than doubles. 
I mean, the, there are crowds upon crowds in the city. It is chaos. These are people, the, the, the increase in population is not just people coming for a good time. These are pilgrims, religious people that are, that are in love with God and want to come and worship in Passover. And, and, and so they're passionate about this festival. And what this meant was that the city of Jerusalem is full of passionate people who could easily be worked up into a riot. And the religious leaders are well aware of this. It's actually uh, it's such a concern that we're told that Pilate is said to have moved to Jerusalem during this time so that he could oversee Roman soldiers who would help keep the order and keep peace, even with a harsh hand, during the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. So the chief priests and the scribes, they, they didn't want to risk angering the, the crowds by publicly arresting Jesus and in start, instead start to think quietly how they might, how they might do it in more of a stealthy manner. Right. Fast forward to the end of our passage, and, and one of Jesus' closest disciples, Judas, is determined to betray Jesus and goes and works out a deal where he can turn his back on, on his teacher. And then nestled between these two bookends of conflict and betrayal is an account of faith and love. Now, Mark doesn't tell us how they get here, but we next come across Jesus while he's at home, at the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Now, if this man had leprosy at the time of Jesus' visit, there wouldn't be much of a gathering around his table to share a meal because people would have been concerned about becoming unclean by being near to this man with leprosy. But what this tells us is that it's likely a nickname for Simon, like well, like calling me tiny, right? There, there was a time in my life where I was tiny, but I'm not tiny anymore, so it's more of a nickname. And so Simon was probably had leprosy at some point. In fact, it's possible that Jesus had even healed him from leprosy, and so now he goes by the nickname Simon the, the leper, right? See, in the midst of this social gathering, this very cool moment where Jesus reclines at the table, makes peace with this man who formerly had leprosy, as this is going on here, this woman comes into the house and does something very shocking. Look, look at verse 3 again with me. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, I, I think it's interesting to note that Mark doesn't tell us what this woman's name is. He doesn't tell us where she came from or, or anything more identifying about her life. The only thing we know about this woman is what she does right there in that moment. That she broke an expensive, a costly alabaster flask of, of nard and poured it over Jesus' head. By the way, for you parents in the room, Miss Donna actually picked up a bunch of samples of nard. And uh, we'll be giving it out to your kids downstairs. So if your house smells like nard later on, you're welcome. But here's the thing, more than this woman, uh, what, what she does in, in, or what she says or what she does in the story, I think Mark is actually teaching us something about who Jesus is through her faithful and loving actions. In, in other words, it's not so much that we have to learn to be like this woman, but through this woman's actions, we learn something very interesting about Jesus. See, in, in contrast to Jesus or Judas's betrayal and the religious leader's scheming, this woman makes a great sacrifice to show her love for Jesus. 
Now, pure nard was something that was, as the text tells us, very costly. It was very expensive. It was something that was imported into the area from another place, uh, and, and it was worth, the, 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 the flask was around 300 denarii. Now, something we should know, a typical day wage of a day laborer was one denarii. So if you're reading this passage in the NIV right now, your Bible may say that, that this, this flask was worth a, a year's worth of wages. If you look back at, at uh, about eight chapters to Mark chapter 6, when, when Jesus challenges his disciples to feed the crowd that had gathered, the 5,000, the 5, they say in the passage, they estimate that it would cost 200 denarii to buy enough bread to feed a crowd of 5,000. That means that an alabaster alabaster flask of, uh, that's worth 300 denarii would feed a crowd of 7,500 people. I mean, that's, that's an expensive flask of perfume. That, that's the most expensive Valentine's Day present any man can get his wife. <laughs> now, I don't think any of us then would blame the group in the room for being uh, kind of taken aback by her actions, thinking that, you know, this is a waste. Like, you could have, you could have, how many people could you have served? How many people could you have cared for? What, what good you could have done for the amount of poor people in our midst here in Jerusalem? See, in, in, in the group's mind, it would have been better for her to, to have done that, to sell what, she's, what she has and use the proceeds to do a good, to do a good deed, to, to give out, uh, to, to, to bless some people that, that need blessing, right? And there's a tradition around Passover where people give out almsgivings uh, to, to the poor, Right? They do a good deed. They, they support those in need. And so it, it makes sense in the group's mind that, that it would have been much better for her to have done that. To, to, to pour it over Jesus' head was a waste in their mind, and they made sure to tell her that they thought so. Right? Mark says that they scolded her in such a way that it was clear that they thought she was being foolish. Now, I think the ESV has kind of a soft way of translating this when it says that they scolded her. The King James says that they murmured against her. The New English translation writes that they spoke angrily to her. NIV, they rebuked her sharply. And, and they, I'm sorry, they rebuked her harshly. And then the New King James, they criticized her sharply. I mean, I don't, I don't think this woman felt like the other people in the room were really, you know, supporting her and proud of her and saying, yeah, good job. That's great job. Like, wow, you really love Jesus. Good work. I don't think she got that impression from them. But if this woman cared about what others thought, she might have been hurt and discouraged, right? But I don't think she was doing it for the, the approval of man. I don't think she did it to impress the people in the room. Listen, listen then to how Jesus describes her actions in verses 6 to 8. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now see, Jesus' reply here includes an allusion to Deuteronomy 15. In Deuteronomy 15, when, when Moses is articulating the law to God's people, in verse 11, he, he uses, Jesus uses some of those words where the people of God are, are encouraged to be generous, to be kind, to be good to those who are in need in their community, to care for the poor. And so by Jesus going back to that verse, by quoting these words, 
he's saying, no, I, I actually think that caring for the poor is a very good thing. I'm not discouraging her from doing this. I'm not discouraging her from caring for the poor. In fact, I'm doing just the opposite. I'm saying that's good, but also she's doing something even more beautiful, something even better. She's celebrating and honoring the burial of Jesus. Now, think about it for a moment. If you have any question about Jesus' heart and his intent in responding to this woman, at the very heart of discipleship is sacrificial love, right? When, when a lawyer asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is, Jesus tells him that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he adds a second layer to it, that, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, Later on in the Gospels, Jesus challenges his disciples to a third layer of sacrificial love when he charges them to, 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 to love their enemies. See, active love is at the very core of who we are as disciples of Jesus. So there's really no way that Jesus is condemning this woman for what she's doing. He, he's also not saying that he, that, that, that he doesn't care about caring for the poor. Generosity toward the poor would always be an important need in the community. What Jesus is saying is that his own time was drawing short, that, that his own time was running out, and though they would always have the opportunity to care for the poor, they wouldn't always have the opportunity to take this time, to mark this moment, and to recognize this moment as being sacred. This woman chose what was better, much like when Mary sat at Jesus' feet while Martha went around the house scurrying about cleaning and preparing and, and trying to be a good host. She chose to do something that Jesus describes as beautiful. Now, I want us to, to see this because I think it's important that we understand he doesn't describe it as good. More than this being a good thing, anointing Jesus' head with perfume was a beautiful thing. More than saying it was right or, or wrong, her actions have this aesthetic value to them. They have a value to them that evokes this feeling in our soul. When she breaks the, the flask and pours that, that amount of perfume over his head, she's doing something that, that's attractive, that's satisfying, that, that's excellent. It, it's more than just good. It, it's more than just right or wrong. It's beautiful. See, for those who had eyes to see it for what it was, this woman creates an opportunity, an experience that touches the soul, much like a, a sunrise over a mountain lake or, or, or being present at your child's birth. And when we experience this kind of earthly beauty, it, it, it stirs something up in us. It awakens in us this longing for eternity, this longing for God to do what only God can do, to, to, to change and to fix this broken world in a way that only God can do. The beautiful thing that this woman did was to anoint Jesus' head. Now, in the Bible, when someone is anointed, there's, there's usually an, an oil or a perfume or spices poured over their heads. When a new king assumes a throne or when there's a new priest that's being called into service, into ministry, uh, they, they'll actually be anointed. There, there, there will be a ceremony where they're set apart and consecrated for this particular task at this particular time in this particular place. And 
So, for example, when, when Samuel anointed Saul to be king of Israel, it, it's not just that he was set apart, but it, it, it revealed to everyone that, that he'd been given God's holiness and authority as God's chosen king over Israel. In, in other words, not only is this a special moment where the world can say, hey, this is God's chosen one, but it's also recognizing that God is giving this authority this responsibility to this man, to, to King Saul. I think as, as we look at, the, at Saul's anointing, what's even more interesting, and I think we'll see this more down the road too, is that God gives his spirit to the anointed person. Shortly after Saul is anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel declares these words to him. Look at verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now hear this. When he turned his back to leave Samuel... God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. See, God, in anointing Saul as king, doesn't just say, hey, this is my chosen man who's going to be king. He gave his spirit to Saul. He empowered Saul to lead his people. He went before him. He gave him another heart. Saul was transformed. See, what you... What you might remember about Jesus being anointed is that when this woman pours the flask over his head, this is not Jesus' first anointing. He too has been given the Spirit of God. He too has been anointed, set apart, consecrated for the work of the ministry of the gospel, to proclaim it. You may remember before his public ministry began, the gospel tells the story of John baptizing Jesus. And when he comes up out of the water, the dove descends upon Jesus. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And in that moment, we hear a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This very anointing in Jesus' life is what Jesus looks back upon when he's later in a synagogue and stands up and reads a portion of the scroll from Isaiah where the scroll is fulfilled in their presence with Jesus proclaiming in Luke 14, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, church, Jesus' anointing at his baptism set him apart and revealed him as, as, the, uh, as one with authority from the Father to, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And then this woman's anointing, maybe she didn't even fully realize what she was doing, but Jesus certainly interprets this as such. But in this woman's anointing, she is prophetically pointing forward to Jesus' burial, his death and his burial, a very special death set apart for a very special purpose and, and that we might be given life. Church, I want you to understand something here. That, 
that this passage, this scripture, is not about the kindness or the generosity or the, 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 the sacrifice of this woman, but it's about what her anointing points forward to. It points forward to the fact that God himself poured, and he, he doesn't pour out an alabaster flask. He becomes the object of anointing in pouring out his son's blood on our behalf that we might have life. So where we see love in this passage is not so much the, the extremity of this woman's love, but in the extreme nature of God's love for us. Church, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I mean, I feel like we have to, I feel like I have to tell myself that over and over and over and over again every day. And I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know if you're like me. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you get it much quicker than I have. But the reality is that we have a God who loves us so very much, much more than we deserve, right? Now, I, again, I don't know about you, but I wonder if, if, if I could do something like this woman did, if I could pour out something that's so precious to me in response to, to Jesus like this woman did. I don't think I could. Last week, we, we mentioned a quote from 4th century theologian Augustine that said, Christ is not valued until... Christ is valued above all, or unless Christ is valued above all. See, there's, there's no doubt that this woman valued Jesus, and she probably understood more about who he was and what he came to do than even his own disciples. We saw that time and time again, how they, they missed the fact that he had been sent to, to, to suffer and die that we might have life, that he would rise again and offer life to his people. There's no doubt in my mind, that this woman valued Jesus. But when I think of sacrificing what's most precious to me, I think of the story of, in the book of Genesis about Abraham. When, when Abraham is told by God to take his only son, Isaac, and, and sacrifice him on the mountain. Now, I know the story ends well, it ends happy, but I think if God were to ask this of me, I might try to bargain with them. God, go ahead, take all my sheep, take all my cattle, they're yours, just don't, don't take my only son. Lord, take my tents, take my servants, you can have all my earthly riches, just don't ask me to give up what's most precious to me. Again, this is what the story of the woman breaking this flask over Jesus' head reminds us of. This is what we're reminded of in, in her anointing of Jesus. It's the truth that God makes the sacrifice on our behalf in pouring out the blood of his only son. You know, every month when we celebrate the Last Supper, some of the words we use from time to time around celebrating the, 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 uh, the Last Supper are these words that Jesus proclaims when he has first established the meal. He, he, he says, he, in the meal, he, he picks up the cup, and he says, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you. In, in other words, this is Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus pours out his blood that we might be washed clean 
that we might be made whole, that we might be forgiven in the eyes of the Father. And not only does he anoint us with his own life, but in his anointing, he sets us apart to be new creations with a new purpose, to go forth and, and, and to proclaim this good news to others, to make disciples of Jesus. We've been consecrated. We've been set apart. You may remember at, at, at Pentecost, right? When the, the followers of Jesus are gathered in the upper room and, and, and these tongues of fire descend upon their heads and they're given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God to dwell within them. You and I, as followers of Christ, we've been anointed because Christ made a way through pouring out his own blood, what was most precious to the Father. See, church, I think we need to understand that this passage isn't so much about what love we need to show God, but the love he's shown us. The story in Genesis 22, uh, like I, I mentioned, ends happy. Let me just read a few verses further down the passage. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, called to Abraham from heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Church, on the hill called Calvary, outside of Jerusalem, the mount of the Lord, our God provided. He poured out what was most precious to him, that you and I might be anointed, that we might be consecrated, that we might be set apart, that we were holy. Not that we would become holy, but we would be made holy through the anointing of the life of his son, Jesus. That we might be given the spirit of God in us to empower us to go forth and to do what he's called us to do. On that hill outside of Jerusalem, the Lord did provide. He provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as we kind of wrap up with a few thoughts, what, how does our passage challenge us to live in God's kingdom today? Well, here, here's the thing. I, maybe this is where I'm struggling. I don't think Mark 14 verses 1 to 11 really give us anything to do. I think our natural response when we read God's word is, okay, so what do I need to do now? How do I be faithful to this? What do I, what do I need to change about how I'm living or, or whatnot? I don't think Mark 14 really teaches us to do anything differently. Because Mark 14 ultimately isn't about how we become like this woman who poured out a 300 denarii flask of, uh, of nard. 
Mark 14 is about reminding us of the God we have who poured out something more precious so that we might have life with him. So I don't think Mark 14 encourages us or teaches us to, do, to, to start doing or anything new or working hard at anything else. If anything, I think Mark 14 invites us to take hold of a more stubborn faith in Jesus. You have a faith in Jesus, cling to it. Abide in it. Take hold of it. Like Be stubborn in holding on to it. Even when everything around you tells you something different, do not let go of your faith in Jesus because the Spirit of God dwells in you and you have been set apart and consecrated for the work of God. And so I think the passage invites us to become a people who believe that since he poured out what was most precious, the life of his son, we too can have life. And so we don't have to start doing three things to be anointed by God. We don't have to be, uh, do three new things to, to be set apart for a, a purpose and filled with his Holy Spirit. We don't have to make sure to, to get our life in order and then he'll anoint us. We need only to believe that it's in Christ Jesus where this life and anointing resides. And, and stubbornly believe that. Even in the face of opposition, stubbornly believe that this life is ours in the life of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27 and 28 tell us this. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. See, church, the sacrifice has been made for us. Abide in that. Uh, abide in the truth that, that, that the sacrifice, God is not asking for you to sacrifice more, but to abide in the sacrifice he's made for you. What that means is that we believe that God is for us. That, that means that when we sin and, and, and not live up to his standard, God does not turn his back on us. That means that when God has created us and set us apart for this life, we participate in this life with him. We trust it. We realize that he has set us apart for this new life. To abide in this truth is to have a stubborn faith that no circumstance in this world could shake us from. The, the passage from... Never mind, I don't have it memorized. The passage from Romans 8, very end of 8. I mean, some of you could probably tell me right now. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we abide in. 
this truth, the truth that nothing can separate us because God has already set us apart in faith to a new life with a new purpose and, and not set us apart so now that we could go start working on it and try and accomplish it in our own strength, but that he's given us, he's anointed us with his spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that works in us to accomplish the life that he set us apart for. So church, the, the sacrifice, the love, is not this woman's that we see in Mark 14, but we're reminded of the Father's love in the sacrifice that the Father made. And so we abide stubbornly, steadfastly, abide in Jesus. I want to remind you, the gospel teaches us that we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What that means, church, is that there is nothing you can do to please God more. There is nothing you can do to, to, to please him more. There's nothing you can do to disgust God more. Just abide in Jesus by faith. Abide in the one who was poured out on our behalf. Can I pray for us? Father, I realize the, the easy job